research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. Seated by my side, Eric Eggers, the co-pilot of this program. We all have times of the year that we get very excited. Kids love in anticipation of Christmas. Uh, other people love Thanksgiving. Some people love uh, spring break or the summer you like this time of year for a very particular reason. Yeah, March Madness is a passion of mine because it combines two of my favorite activities, sports and gambling. So <laughs> you, you know, forgot drinking. <laughs> easy. <laughs> Getting aggressive. <laughs> no, but uh, March Madness is around the corner. And, and I think it's uh, obviously it's an exciting time for anybody that does like uh, college basketball. It's, you know, it's a national holiday. Many times um, people take off a lot of work. But I think that actually it's weird now to be experiencing a March Madness NCAA tournament without thinking about uh, what happened three years ago, yeah. which I think makes this week a weird anniversary of sorts. It is the three-year anniversary of when the world shut down because of COVID. That's right. And and back then, it was a different kind of March Madness. There was oh. a kind of a madness where you described to me you were you were you were originally going to go up to the ACC tournament to watch it, um, and then you were sitting in a bar somewhere, and they literally stopped the game at halftime. Well, you and I, first off, it was a restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) You're really nervous about this drinking reference that I made. (laughs) Not as nervous as my doctor. (laughs) Secondly, uh, we were at a restaurant together because I didn't go to the ACC tournament. So we were there and we were watching like, hey, there's there's a golf tournament on that I think they decided to have without fans. Right. And then we're watching and yeah, the Florida State. Uh, I'm a big fan of Florida State basketball. Uh, their game was canceled, and then other tournaments were happening. And then it's like all of a sudden, everybody just decided, "Wait, are we still doing this? Are, are we still right. functioning as a society?" Right. And one game stopped at halftime. Uh, it was super weird. And then the following week, I was actually driving down to um, visit uh, some family. When on March 16th, the day before St. Patrick's Day, I remember Donald Trump and Anthony Fauci. They had this big press conference. They came out with these oh. new guidelines that said, hey, no more than 10 people at a gathering. And meanwhile, we're supposed to be on a party limo with a dozen people for St. Patrick's (laughs) Day the next day. So everything just got real weird, real quick. And like all the things we were planning on doing were like, well, that's not going to happen. And it actually might be illegal now. (laughs) You went from party limo to what? Just sitting around and isolation. Isolation. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, everybody had that experience. And as we always like to do, we think it's important to look back at history and understand why it happened, what happened, and who the winners and losers were. Because you remember there was a lot of fear in the air among a lot of people. There were concerns about the collapsing economy. So we want to look at who were the winners uh, in the bailouts and in the government programs uh, that exploded as a result of COVID and describe and explain why certain people won and some some people lost because of this. Yeah, we have three industries specifically we're going to talk about. But before we get into the three industries that, you know, uh, took lots of money, yeah. you actually sort of push back and pause on the use of the word bailout. 
Yeah. Well, some of them were bailout, but in a lot of cases, look, businesses were told they had to stop doing business. You know, you think back to the 2008 financial crisis. I don't have any sympathy for those Wall Street firms, for the companies that were passing around mortgage-backed securities, for the real estate lenders, because they all made stupid choices. And the consequences of those stupid choices were their businesses were collapsing. Um, and that's how the free market works, right? You got Jeff Bezos makes a lot of money on Amazon. You got somebody who does something stupid, they lose all the money. Uh, in this particular case, though, it wasn't really the airlines or the restaurants or even the sports leagues who said, we're going to stop. They were told by the government, you need to stop. So I'm sympathetic from the standpoint that if you're going to tell a business they can't do business, uh, the government's forcing them to, there should be some assistance to help them going. The problem is... The devil's in the details and who actually won out. It was not a function of government making great policy. It was a function of who had the best uh, the best lobbyists and who had the best inside track with government agents. Who were the biggest campaign contributors to our decision makers? Those all loomed large, as it so often does. And government is not this nicely smooth, greased machine. Uh, it is a machine that is very much uh, open to being manipulated. And it is all the time. And you, your recent book was about how how the United States government and its people that run it are actively manipulated by China. And it's worth pointing out, while we talk about the airline industry, the hospitals, and the education departments uh, that, that took in lots of money with suboptimal outcomes because of the pandemic, China, where the virus indisputably originated, yeah. <laughs> which wherever you think it came from, it came from China. They also were among the entities that took a lot of money in <laughs> in pandemic relief funds. We've got 32 Chinese companies. We got these paycheck paycheck protection loan programs. Right. Got loans of more than a million dollars. So 180 million dollars worth of U.S. taxpayer money went to Chinese companies in the early days of the pandemic. Somewhere between 192 million and 419 million went to 125 companies that Chinese entities own or invest in. So you talk about like what, what the United States response, uh, not exactly targeted, not exactly precise, and not necessarily beneficial in terms of a maximum impact. That's right. And we're also going to talk about uh, how people took advantage uh, of this program, massive fraud in this program, because the government creates this one size fits all, uh, very liberal uh, a, approach to things, which is, hey, just send us uh, the name of your LLC, the number of employees that you have, and we're going to send you money back uh, for this Paycheck Protection Program. And that ended up getting Chinese companies U.S. taxpayer money. And some of these Chinese companies, as we're going to talk about, you know, have some really interesting, curious ties. So it's not like we're talking about a, you know, a food company. Uh, we're talking about some companies that are very much involved in the military industrial space that were getting taxpayer money from us because of the COVID virus that was created in China to begin with. Hey, so we can celebrate the three year anniversary of that this week. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> exactly. So the, the first industry we'll talk about that's a, a big winner three years after the pandemic was is the airline industry. Yeah. And I think I hadn't thought about it, but if you'd asked me which industry took the most money in terms of federal aid, I don't know that I would have said the airline industry, right. but, but that is in fact true. Uh, the Biden administration oversaw $54 billion in aid to U.S. airline companies, which you talk about the 2008-2009 financial crisis, that's roughly the same amount of money that General Motors got. Of course, the difference there is for the U.S. investment then, um, the United States government obtained a 61% holding in GM, 
Uh, on the contrary, airlines are actually only being asked to pay back 30% of the money they got right. from the pandemic. Yeah. All in the name of keeping airlines flying. Yeah. I mean, it was really strange because, you know, you were talking earlier about the experience we had with the uh, tournament. Uh, I actually flew to Houston uh, in April of 2020, and it was utterly bizarre because this was a large plane. Uh, there were two passengers on and there were three or four flight attendants. So there were literally two passengers on this entire, uh, it was a Southwest uh, flight. Uh, and then I landed at, at uh, Houston's uh, Hobby Airport. All the restaurants were open, but nobody was there. It, it was it was like either the rapture or there had been a massive, you know, a killing of the population. And I was one of the remaining survivors. It was very strange. And I guess the logic was, well, we need to keep things running. Um, but it made no sense to me to have these these empty airplanes flying when very few people wanted to fly. They could, probably could have cut the capacity by, a, by, by two-thirds, and they w- would have been fine. But this aid was also basically an open check uh, to these companies. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, United Airlines actually spent some of their money on an electric helicopter company. Now, the... <laughs> ostensibly so this is a pandemic happening we, right. we have isolated planes i'll never forget you sent a picture of yourself on that plane i did yeah and it was like nobody there and then right. i remember you came back and said listen if i have to go to houston at least i don't have to be near anybody from houston <laughs> i was like peter that's you shouldn't say that about houstonians <laughs> it's just rude <laughs> well here's the funny thing about that flight too is there were two of us on the flight one person was in the second row the other one was in the 32nd <laughs> row so that you know there was there was a palpable a fear in the air but you know the point is is that that this money was supposed to provide paycheck protection, yet United and some of the other uh, airlines didn't use it for that. They used it for other, uh, you know, capital allocation. And the bill, as they always do, was done in a panic. They rushed it through. They didn't put any conditions or restrictions on it, how it was spent. Uh, Basically, these airlines could spend it how they want. It's good old fashioned crony capitalism. Uh, that's exactly what this was. And um, it was ridiculous the way it was enacted by our government. Well, obviously, travel was an industry that was dramatically impacted by the pandemic. Yeah. But if you compare the airline industry and the amount of money they got to the hotel industry, for example, hotel industries did not get a set aside. They had to deal with just the Paytech Protection Program, right. which had maximum amounts of $10 million on some of those loans. But the airline industry going above and beyond, and as you noted, stuff that wasn't just spent on keeping staff employed. They're buying electric helicopters <laughs> uh, and their stock actually benefited profoundly because of it. And according to the New York Times, one of the reasons why airlines maybe were set aside this way is labor unions, right? Right. Uh, very successful. And of course, this is not just with the Biden administration, the Trump administration deciding sure. where this money is going to go as well. But the labor unions claim that if airlines go bankrupt, pilots are going to be laid off, that you know, have to maintain their licensing. So they sort of said this like really bad future consequences if we don't spend all this money, which sure makes sense. But then you say, well, wait, then why do you need electric helicopters? And um, and their stocks had record results in March of 2021, right? So like a year after the pandemic happens, airline stocks two and a half times higher than they were during the pandemic, largely because of the government bailout. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's good old fashioned crony capitalism. And you had decisions that were being made in the airline sector and other sectors where it's not being made on some, you know, uh, detached economic principle. It's good old fashioned. Where are the votes? Who are campaign contributors? How can we help these large corporations? And it's one of the reasons we have to remind ourselves constantly, we are not pro-business. We are pro-free market. And there's a huge difference. Milton Friedman, the economist, talked about this all the time. This is an example of being pro 
business and the insiders and the large actors uh, got the better part of the deal. That's especially the case as we move to the second group, which is the hospitals. There was a huge amount of money that went to the hospitals. It's a pretty grim story. Now, I didn't I hadn't thought about it a ton, but you're right. It's a, I did, a, I didn't know how we divvied up the funding for hospitals. B, I guess I was a little surprised to find out that hospitals didn't do particularly well. I mean, it's a pandemic. Like, lots of people are going to the hospital. Yeah, yeah. You think you have more customers conceptually. So, it, to right. me, it wasn't like an automatic, hey, during a pandemic, the hospitals are going to lose a lot of money. Right. But for many of them, that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many of them faced uh, uh, very difficult situations. Remember, there was a lot of uncertainty initially about, you know, who was going to pay for tests, how it was done. There were all these high costs associated with uh, treating people with COVID. But they, the decision they made was essentially to fund hospitals ber- based on the amount of revenue uh, a profit that they had. That was sort of their starting point. And so what ended up happening is- But you wonder, like, who who got them to make that decision? The <laughs> yeah, lobbyists for the yeah, hospitals yeah, with yeah, lots of money. Exactly. Those with the right connections in Washington, D.C. So for-profit hospitals, large successful ones, took in huge sums of money where some of the nonprofit hospitals who were really quaking in this situation um, didn't make out quite so well. And there's some pretty startling examples. There's absolutely some startling examples. And by the way, the hospital industry generally continues to be negatively impacted, which is what makes the fact that some ho- the profitable hospitals got more money than anybody else, mm-hmm. all the more damning. Yeah. Uh, in 2020, hospitals were projected to lose an estimated $320 billion. And so by the fall of 2022, it actually hadn't gotten much better. So by and large, like the hospital industry continues to struggle because of the pandemic. Operating margins, they say in the fall of last year, down 37% potentially up to 133%, right? So like not good, right? but no. So, but then the places that did well, the hospitals that were very successful got tons more money yeah. than the hospitals that were these nonprofits kind of just struggling along. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to make a, a pretty stark comment here, but I think it's accurate. So one of the hospitals that did really well is Inova. It's a hospital system that just happens to serve Northern Virginia, which is where most government employees would go if they got COVID. Northern Virginia, by the way, like the wealthiest part of the country. Exactly. Uh, They actually did extremely well. Um, they were prospering uh, when the just before the pandemic hit. They had a double A plus credit rating. Uh, they had 600 days worth of cash. Uh, they, were more, they reported $255 million in profit from patient care. Uh, they received um, a huge sum of money. Uh, they took in $186 million of federal pandemic aid. Uh, one of their hospitals alone in Fairfax, which is, again, just outside of D.C. I used to live in Fairfax a lot lot of government employees live in Fairfax. They got $243,000 per hospital bed in Wait, um, in federal support. 243000 That's like a quarter of a million dollars per bed. Per bed. That's an expensive bed. That's an expensive bed. And the chief executive of the company warned after he got the aid that they were going to cut jobs anyway. <laughs> 400 jobs. Remember, this is a for-profit hospital. Uh, they knitted $1 billion, that's with a B, dollars in cash from operating during the period that they received the aid. Now, contrast that with a rural upstate hospital, the Arnott Ogden Medical Center in upstate New York. I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not a lot of, lot of senior government executives go to Arnott Ogden Medical Center in upstate New York for their COVID care. Uh, they received less than the half amount per bed 
than Inova did. So I understand that Arnott is smaller, but if you just do a average per bed comparison, they got half of what this rich government serving hospital chain got right outside of Washington, D.C. And, and there's a lot of numbers and a lot of just kind of words yeah. thrown at us quickly, but just to kind of back up. So a pandemic sweeps the country. The government has to decide how do we help all kinds of different industries, right? Even right. That's, you know, they have the paycheck protection for just any kind of any industry. But hospitals, all right, we're going to give you some money. Right. And they came up with, I mean, that's the thing. Is they came up with a form and said, okay, the hospitals that were the most successful, we're going to give them the most money right. because they conceptually will then be losing the most money. Correct. But that's actually sort of backwards. Exactly. It should be based on the people that you care, uh, that you care for, and the number of beds. It should not be based on some formula because obviously affluent, wealthy hospitals are going to make more money because they serve more affluent communities. So it just shows, again, the kind of priorities. And, and by the way, these schemes always end up being self-serving. They always end up serving and benefiting a certain class of people. Uh, and that's not the people that live in rural upstate New York or Wyoming or rural parts of Texas. It's the people that uh, that serve and live around affluent places like Washington, D.C. And oh, by the way, if you're listening to this in March of 2023, which is when we're recording it, uh, you should know that many of the pandemic funding sources are still in operation today. That's actually one of the reasons why we decided to look at this is the Biden administration just announced that as of May, they're <laughs> going to finally end some of these designations and some of the right. funding things that go along with it. Yeah. And so you have to sort of wonder, did it, did it last so long because the same people that were in position to lobby for and to curry the type of benefits we're detailing, you know, what, like what's the incentive to turn it off? Yeah, there there is no incentive, right? And and you can always say that there's an emergency. It's very similar to the to the whole forgiveness of student loans, right? It went on a, on a hiatus, having to pay back your federal student loan, making monthly payments. They've suspended that in 2020. Uh, it's still suspended, <laughs> you know. And and the argument is the argument is well, because COVID has disrupted people's ability to earn money. We've got the lowest unemployment rate we've had in decades. It has not disrupted anything. The point is, Joe Biden recognizes, unfortunately, the political benefits of continuing to dole out large sums of cash. That's why we have these uh, deficits that we're running and the debt that we're having. And not all of this is going to Americans. It's actually also going to the chai as well. Now, as somebody who has written extensively about Chinese influence in America, uh, were you surprised to learn just how widespread the funding of Chinese-owned entities was in America by U.S. tax dollars in the name of the pandemic? Yeah, I kind of was. Um, I, I honestly thought there would be some kind of a, you know, look, if they're if they're Chinese owned businesses, the Chinese government can provide financial support. I mean, what an idea. You know, I, I know it's a radical idea, especially when you realize who some of these companies are. Yes, they do have a presence in the United States, but they're they're helpful to the Chinese military industrial complex. Why our taxpayers should be subsidizing them is pretty ridiculous. And again, it just shows the government rushes these things. We do this with the federal budget through these continuing resolutions. They don't actually sit down and systematically think through this stuff in terms of what's the best policy. They wing it. I mean, what's more troubling to you that we have U.S. companies that are owned by China or you know, Chinese-owned entities operating in the United States that got money or that we have companies with this connection to the Chinese government that are even relevant from a military technology standpoint in the first place? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Both of them should be concerns. And we've talked before many times about some of these companies, their presence in the United States, the reasons that they're a security threat. 
But now when you add on top of that, that we're giving them money, I mean, I'll just give you an example. Um, Continental Aerospace Technologies received a loan of $10 million and Aviage Systems received a loan of at least $350,000. Both of those companies are controlled or owned by the Aviation Industry Corporation of China or AVIC. AVIC is the largest military contractor in China. They're the ones that that steal uh, our military secrets. The AVIC just launched a new uh, Chinese stealth fighter that looks remarkably similar and has remarkably similar technology to our stealth fighters. And it's been known for a long time that AVIC does this. Their whole basis of support is developing the Chinese military, which is, by the way, pointed at us. And yet here we are giving loans of $10 million, loans of $350,000 to their companies that are based in the United States. Uh, there are a couple of other examples, two semiconductor companies owned by Chinese firms and three media outlets that have close ties to the CCP. Wait, there's um, only three media outlets in this country with close ties to the CCP? <laughs> officially, officially <laughs> uh, uh, close to the CCP. Um, they received funds. And then the HNA group, which is this really sort of uh, murky a Chinese company that a lot of people believe operates on the fringes of of engaging in, in perhaps a sort of espionage component uh, for the Chinese state and influence peddling operation based on their history. Uh, several of their uh, companies, including the HNA Group of North America, the HNA Training Center in New York, and China's HNA Group, all received loans of a million dollars. Um, from our federal government, from our taxpayers. Uh, so again, why are we doing this? H&A Group is owned by some of the, the red aristocrats of China, the very wealthy Chinese political families. Why are we throwing taxpayer money at them? It's, it's absurd and outrageous. Well, I know you're very concerned about the threat China poses to the United States from a national security standpoint. I'd argue that I think while that's troubling and concerning, uh, the most concerning thing that was done with pandemic money, in my opinion, that will have the greatest consequences for the United States and our sovereignty is what happened to the schools, right? And we've yeah. done podcasts before about we once we got the testing results back and we've seen that literally decades of learning gains were wiped out by the forced closure of schools and children having to learn remotely or having to learn with a mask on. And I mean, right. just what happened in schools is, some would have said, criminal. Yes. Right. I mean, it, it should be if, in, viewed in any other context. If you had done this to um, generations of America's kids, it's a crime. Right. And the worst part about it, I think, as we reviewed these funding sources, is that a lot of it was subsidized. And then what happened after that? So we're talking like billions of dollars in federal aid when California uh, went to problems caused by California's extensive lockdowns, including the psychological distress proliferated among the students. And the really bad part is, you know who the number one kind of partner in California's Department of Education deciding how this money was going to be allocated are the teachers unions who were the ones advocating for the school closures in the first place. And Really? I, just, I, I thought it was just like average teachers. It wasn't average teachers <laughs> they consulted. It was the actual teachers unions. Uh, the, I'm shocked. The, the union leadership, right? It turns out they have a bit of a voice in the California educational system. Right. Uh, but my favorite part of like in the plan that California enacted, they said they'd use federal funds to address the psychological and educational damage wrought by extended school closures and provide, quote, restorative justice to students of color and LGBTQ. Yeah. So you may have want your kid to like learn how to do some ciphering or, you know, get back on the spelling. No, no, no. We'll get right. to that after we get 
all the LGBTQ kids in social racial justice kids restored. Yeah. So so let's play this back again. State of California says we're shutting down the schools, even though there's no evidence that it really helped in terms of any health, uh, you know, preventing any health problems. We're going to shut down the schools. We acknowledge that creates psychological damage on kids. So we're going to give more money to those same schools who shut down to help people understand those psychological problems. And oh, by the way, we're going to also throw in money for restorative justice. I mean, a typical government thing to do, which is to say, we need money for problem A, but no, we're actually going to use it for A, B, C, D, E, and F. Uh, And that's essentially what they did. And um, if parents in California are not outraged by this, there is nothing uh, that I think should outrage them. Um, and again, it was these stakeholders, these institutions, the prime interest was not the students, which it should be. The second in, in, you know, secondary concern was not teachers. The prime interest was the organized political power, which are the teachers unions. Yeah, I mean, the point is, you know, COVID cost us all a lot, right? Yes. The last three years, we lost loved ones. We lost uh, chances to engage one another. I think we lost, honestly, part of the American fabric of just trust in each other. COVID turned the social contract upside down. And we we were told in some ways to see each other as threats to each other's physical safety. Right. And I think the mental damage that has caused many people, we have yet to fully reconcile with, but we all know people that went crazy during COVID. Yeah, yeah, no, and, that's right. And, yes. and so I think like we've lost a lot and I just think it's weird to say, hey, so that all happened. We all lost in many ways. But some of these companies end up winning significantly because of, as you noted, their relationship and partnership with the U.S. government. And it's weird and sad and tragic to think that we essentially funded yeah. and bankrolled uh, the misallocation and complete waste of billions of tax dollars. Yeah. The other thing we did is we funded a lot of uh, corruption and fraud. Oh, fun. Uh, because, because uh, you know, some people called it the biggest fraud in a generation because as they've looked at um, the, you know, bailouts that, that went to, or I should say the uh, financial support that went to certain companies, it turns out that there's massive amounts of COVID fraud. I mean, some of the estimates are that it could be hundreds of billions of dollars in fraud uh, that occurred. Um, and it was essentially the looting of the COVID relief uh, plan. Um, here's, the, here's the bottom line, though, and I mean this question seriously. Do you think that actually most people in the government care that that so much of the money was fraudulently taken. And the reason I ask that is anytime there's a crisis, I remember the 2008 financial crisis and there were actually people in government that were saying we need to have helicopters just throwing cash out to people because that we need to have liquidity, right? Liquidity is the phrase they use. Everybody needs to have money. We need liquidity in the system. I think honestly that uh, there are some people at our senior levels of government, they don't care that, that, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars that was fraudulently set because it creates liquidity. It allows people to have money to spend money. I just think honestly, they don't care because they never put guidelines in place that prevent this kind of thing. No, and I think it also speaks to the necessity of having safeguards to ensure integrity, right? Whether it's whether it's an election or whether it's a welfare system. I mean, this is why you want to make sure that you're executing it in a proper way, because then when an emergency happens and you've got a massive volume of more activity than you're prepared for, if you don't have program integrity on the front end, you're going to get fraud and abuse on the back end. And I think that's exactly what happened. So I'll give you just one statistic. 
the Pandemic Responsible Response Accountability Committee, which was set up to look at the, this thing, said that if you look at the applications for emergency loans, there were 69,000 questionable social security numbers, meaning that the numbers didn't correspond, you know, so it was do, like, do you have any of those written down? <laughs> <laughs> you'll probably find them pretty easily, <laughs> but you know, so it's like John Smith applies for an application, but you know, the social security number, uh, uh, you know, corresponds with, you know, uh, Abigail Goldstein, you know, in other words, this clearly doesn't connect with the applicant. Those people got loans anyway. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely insane. And I understand people are going to make mistakes, but make them correct the mistakes and make sure that it actually corresponds with what it's supposed to. Otherwise, don't give them the freaking loan. The short answer is no, I don't think they care because whether they think that liquidity in the market's good or maybe a more charitable if misguided frame is as long as the people that need the help get it, who cares if <laughs> the people that don't need it also get it? Yeah. Well, the problem is it perpetuates more fraud, right? Because oh, yeah. people that got these, you know, some of them are probably joking around and bragging to their friends uh, how they ripped off the system. And it leads to this sort of corrosive effect on our society. Government does that repeatedly. Businesses don't put up with fraud because it costs them a bottom line and they have an obligation of their owners and shareholders to fix it. Government doesn't care. It's one of the problems, the inherent problems with these kinds of government programs. I'm not saying we don't have any government programs, but you should have basic basic guidelines in place, or it's going to have this corrosive effect on society. And I think COVID, as we talked about at the beginning, COVID has changed the country in lots of ways. Unfortunately, less trust among people, uh, more, you know, insecurity about certain things, but it's also created this kind of, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to get mine. Uh, even if I need to bend the rules or manipulate the government, I'm going to get mine. America's social fabric may be torn, but their stock prices are up. <laughs> That's what matters. <laughs> well, on that optimistic note, uh, we want to thank you all for joining us. Um, uh, Eric, it's been an amazing three years with COVID. Uh, I'm glad your family's weathered it. Mine has as well. We hope everybody in the audience has uh, is enjoying a time now that is um, less anxious uh, than it was three years ago. Um, you can find this podcast and um, our work at thedrilldown.com. Thank you so much for joining us.